You're listening to Fuilnof Radio on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, broadcasting from my traditional territory of Husainich and Lekwungen territory. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Fuilnof Radio. On this episode, I sit down with Joe Seward and Stephanie Papik, and we talk about traditional practices and how they have evolved through the years. I sit down and ask Joe questions about traditional war canoe racing, the history and the, I guess, evolution of traditional war canoe races. I'm going to ask you about My name is Joe Seward. My traditional name is Gothlichton, and I'm from the Sartlip First Nation out in Brentwood Bay. What is a war canoe? So a war canoe is um, uh, cedar cedar dugout canoes. We're mainly used for um, transportation use um, in uh, you know the history of our people, but uh, for traveling purposes, um, you know, for hunting, uh, you know, more, you know, more uh, survival. Do you know why it was called war canoes? Yeah, well, back in you know the ancient, um, the history of our people, you know, there was the invaders, other nations, you know, would come and you know invade our territory for, you know, whatever reason it was, whether to, whether it was um, you know, to take, you know, our belongings or medicines or you know, uh, our our women, you know, or whatever it was, um, you know, there'd be wars amongst our people and it was a strategic thing you know our elders our ancestors came up with the long you know slender canoes that we have now our 11 man is a 52 foot cedar dugout canoe and you know which is you know a lot faster in the water and that's why it was it's called a war canoe because uh, they they used to war amongst each other but uh you know it's not used for that anymore you know it's a more of a coming together and a celebration of um our people and the survival of our ancestors. Is there any rules that you have to follow while racing? Oh uh, well, there's just always the, you know, the love and respect that we have for our canoes and each other. You know, because you know, in our culture and our spiritual beliefs, you know, the canoe is considered to be alive. You know, it's a uh, comes from uh, cedar. You know, our sacred tree. Our it's uh, you know our savior. You know, in a way. So. You know, our canoes and paddles are sacred and held in high regard, you know, and then, you know, even in our cultural ways, you know, we respect one another, you know, there's no, you know, other than, you know, the elders and children who are held in, you know, we look after them and, but uh, there's no rankings in our, our cultural ways. So, you know, we're all equals out there and we, uh, you know, do our best to, have fun and get along with one another and, you know, look after one another. How long have you been paddling for? Um, you know, we were born into this as a sport, you know. Um, I was five years old when I, I started racing um, on a solo canoe, um, singles, singles races. Um, but it doesn't really get, you know, that's for like the experience and the fun and the love of the sport. You know, it gets competitive after, you know, I guess when you're f- between 14 and 16 years old. Back then, what are the canoes made of and then what are canoes made of nowadays? 
Well, yeah, that's a, that's actually a good question though because um, we paddle our the the cedar dugouts. So it's a there's the eleven man, which is a fifty two foot cedar log, you know, carved out into the shape of um, you know our canoes. Um, then there's the the six man, which is a forty seven foot, I think. Um, then there's a two man and a one man, you know, uh, canoes. But uh, you know, you're just growing with times. You know, the modern day, a lot of our canoe circuit is going to uh, Cedar Strip, which is uh, you know so much easier to come by, you know, the planks rather than a full log, and you know it's just easier to work with, and you know, and and they're lighter, you know, it makes it faster for, for racing. So, but um, you know, it really is hard to come by a full cedar log, you know, and in today's day and age anyway um so yeah is there certain kind of paddles you have to use or what kind of paddles do you use we try to keep it traditional you know there's uh everybody's going more towards the polynesian style paddles but you know but they are still cedar um you know in cedar strips cedar like little planks um i'm not a paddle builder but um how often are traditional canoe races? So uh, our first race is like Mother's Day weekend, which is in May. And our last race is usually uh, the Makah Days, which we race at the end of August every summer. So it's May to the end of August. And we travel every weekend throughout the summer to different um, communities to compete against one another, you know, other nations and families. What kind of races are in a typical weekend? Yeah, there's... um. Like I said, there's the solo race, the doubles, two-man race, um, the six-man and 11-man. So different age categories. There's, um, you know, right down to U7, um, U7 children, um, then a U10, um, U14, U16, and then women and men in, in all those categories. So, you know, it's um, I think it's awesome because, you know, in, when I was young, you know, it'd be every, you know, every so often there would be a U six or u7 race and u10 whatever but uh seems like every race that we go to has those divisions now so you know it's really growing our sport and our uh, you know to carry this tradition on how many canoes are you competing against in a weekend um well there's whole there's a lot of clubs you know a lot of clubs from up and down the island you know into chilliwack lower mainland uh, into the washington state there's a lot of canoe clubs there you know, some have, you know, just women's crews or some have just men's or some have just kids crews. So I don't, I, I don't know. Like in the men's division, we race probably 10 other clubs, maybe. Yeah. What is your role or position on the canoe? Um, Yeah, I mean, there's the, the bowman who, you know, um, kind of sets the pace for the crew. Um, you know, that's a lot of hard work up there because your, your paddle is getting in the first uh, you know, the first paddle to get in and everybody follows. Um, and then keeping that steady pace, you know, not getting too fast or getting, you know, slowing down too much. Uh, and then there's the steersman, which is, you know, more like the captain of the crew that steers our canoe. And, and yeah, I guess, um, you know, the, the more experienced guys are the ones who talk and keep the crew going. Um, so I guess you could say I fall under that category, you know, to just kind of encourage encourage our guys through a through a race especially when it gets tough you know uh, battling with another um nation's canoe um you know it's a lot of hard work it's fun 
how long are the races for like an 11 man six man double and single races yeah uh, 11 men are usually um men and women are usually around maybe 5k five kilometers six kilometers um there is some that are getting close to 10 kilometers but um you know the six men obviously is a little bit shorter and then the small canoes the the singles race and the doubles race are um short sprints you know you can be out there for three to five minutes you know (laughs) but it's an all-out sprint it gets really tough in those races what does training look like do you train during the season or before the season starts yeah um it's uh definitely a a commitment um you need to be um committed to be a part of this this um work a new circuit you know um training every day on the water um you know our um our old leader past leaders you know our late grandparents and stuff would have would have made us train properly and do the extra work the running and the working out and stuff but um i guess you could say we're getting kind of spoiled <laughs> you know we just do the water work you know and um but it's every day you know it gets 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 tough you know your whole summer is based on paddling but you know the the traveling and uh, mixing and mingling with other nations, family and friends, and, you know, just being together, being a team, working as a team is, uh, you know, the reward. And then seeing all our children coming up and doing, following the same path. So it's all worth it. What is the feeling like while you're out in the water during a race? Well, yeah, it's a huge uh, adrenaline rush, you know, um, lined up with, you know, 10 other crews or whatever in the, Right off the start, it's like, you know, you get chills and, um, you know, it's a, it's tough, you know, it's a battle, um, but you have to do your best to keep yourself calm as well, you know, and calm and contain, you know, uh, save your energy. And, um, yeah, a lot of, like when it gets really tough, when you're battling to, to, to the end of a race, you know, it all becomes a, a mind thing, you know, mm-hmm. keep yourself going and then. You know, that's kind of where the spirituality comes in as well, too, though. You kind of dig deep and um, look to those um, spiritual connections we have with, um, well, I guess the teachings that we carry, you know, the connections we have with our canoe and uh, the water and stuff like that. Do you only race in traditional canoes now, or...? Well, no, we um, we just started paddling in the outrigger Polynesian-style uh, canoes um, over the past few years, probably in 2010 was when we started that but that you know that was only like one race a year um we're getting a little more involved in that circuit as well now um you know we've made we've won the canadian nationals like four times now so um we're trying to get more involved in that and you know kind of build on the legacy that uh you know our late grandparents left for us um so yeah we're uh do our work new circuit you know we try to prioritize that because we have a crew to look after but yeah, we're kind of getting into the outrigger circuit as well. How is that compared to traditional canoes? Oh, paddling is paddling, <laughs> right? But uh, you do sit sit a lot different. You know, they're, the outriggers are more out of the water, which is our whereas our canoes, um, you know, we're like on the water line. So use uh, different muscle groups, and um, their canoes are, you know, made different. Um, you know, so we like technique 
uh, paddling technique is um is big in the outrigger paddling so um yeah we we kind of had to relearn you know re go back to the drawing board and figure out what we're doing wrong and what we can better ourselves at so and we've actually had um you know world-class paddlers interested in geronimo and um i guess our culture as well um which have you know they've offered their their help and we've had um you know john puakea is a world-class paddler from hawaii he designs um outriggers and he's actually traveled to um Saanich to to work with us you know he did a paddling clinic out there and which um really taught us a lot and you know it's helping helping us and yeah so we're thankful for that I think you've mentioned it before, but what is the name of the canoe club you paddle with? Or? Yeah, uh, Geronimo, Geronimo Canoe Club. Um, you know, our late grandfather um, named our club that, and uh, you know, which is funny because, you know, people kind of question it, like Geronimo, why Geronimo? <laughs> you know, and we're like, well, no, not the, not the Apache warrior. We're not Apache. <laughs> um, it's actually there's actually a funny story behind it um yeah i think that's my next question where does the name come from or how did that come to be so that's something we've never really had a chance to explain to anyone um you know and the our 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 guys our, our club actually asked me to share you know online somewhere or something and i've never got a chance to so this is actually the first time i get to share share this story um so our late grandparents, Ivan and Madeline Morris, you know, the founders of our club, you know, they had two, two young, you know, little uh, chihuahuas, dogs, and um, one's name was Geronimo, and one's name was uh, Duchess. And, uh, you know, long story short, um, Geronimo got hit by a, a car, and he, like, paralyzed his back two legs. And, you know, eventually... He, he he didn't live too much longer after that, and my early granny was devastated about that. And that was just the same time they finally bought a family canoe for for their children, which is you know our parents. And they needed a name for it, the the club, the canoe, and uh, that's where the name came from. They named him Geronimo. <laughs> um, you know the whole story. If you get to listen to the whole story, you know it's actually a pretty you know, a touching story, um, you know, a mm-hmm. uh, big uh, tribute to um, more our late granny than mm-hmm. anything, you know, my... <laughs> when was the Canoe Club formed? Um, 1974, I believe it was, 73 or 74, yeah, um, is when they finally bought um, a canoe for their sons and their daughters, you know, my mom and her siblings, and and their friends. So I did research, and I saw that you guys traveled and represented Team Canada. Where are some of the places you've raced that are, aren't maybe local? Yeah, so like I mentioned, um, we did, um, we won the Canadian Nationals title um, four times now. And um, I think it was after we won the third one. Um, that won us a, a spot on Team Canada to travel to the World Distance Championships. Um, we went to we traveled to Tahiti to compete, and um, 
Yeah, that was an awesome experience, but that was, you know, very early in our um, outrigger days, you know, and I think we've learned a lot since then. We actually uh, came across this again. We qualified again to go to Australia, and which we leave on August 6th. 6th to the 18th, we'll be in uh, Australia competing in the World Championships again. Um, we've done other international races too, as well, too, you know, the um, Columbia River Gorge. Um, we just traveled down there this past summer, and we actually placed third, and it's an international event. So we've been, you know, a few places, you know, we uh, a few of our guys went down to Hawaii to race there. And yeah. So. How does it feel to represent Canada in those kinds of races? Yeah, that's a... Uh, it's overwhelming um you know it's an awesome feeling definitely you know it's a, it's an honor to uh well even more more than an honor to you know to represent our our family our community you know um our country you know um it's huge and um it's more the the support that we're getting from you know our community surrounding communities and um you know that's it's awesome you know is there like maybe a a story or a memory while racing that kind of you maybe want to share or if you're comfortable um well maybe the Tahiti trip um you know we're doing pretty you know respectable and we're inside the top 10 crews in the world um and um we're racing uh Team Singapore, you know, we're ahead of like Team Samoa, Team Japan, um, Tuitonga, um, you know, like some big club or big country names, you know, and um, we're about maybe five minutes out from the finish. And we're like, you know, kind of feeling it. Our adrenaline was pumping again. We're like, oh, we're almost there, boys. And, uh, you know, after a, a grueling, you know, it was a 29 kilometer race. We're coming to the end of that, and you know, in those Tahitian waters, you know, it's uh, pretty huge swells, you know, pretty close to ten foot swells, and um, yeah, we ended up uh, tipping over like five minutes from the finish. So, and we were trying to jump back in the canoe, and uh, we realized that our our canoe was busted in half. So, you know, that was really heartbreaking to. Um, you know, just um, not to finish and knowing how much support we had here back home in Canada. So, um, but just um, being in that race was, um, you know, the adrenaline and the, you know, just the pride that we had, you know, could feel it on the canoe and um, took a lot of, you know, self-talk to get through that race. We were almost there and then that happened. So, um, you know, that won't. I don't think it'll ever happen again to us, you know, just a huge learning, learning experience. And so, yeah, that's a little, little, little story. Anyway, I could share about paddling, you know, it's, um, gets emotional out there sometimes. <laughs> and now is there anything about war canoe racing that you'd want to share that I maybe forgot that you'd want our CFUV listeners to know about? Um, not too much, you know, um, we do host a, a, a canoe race, a war canoe race out in Brentwood Bay. It's usually the first weekend in August every year, annually. And yeah, if they'd like to come and check it out, that'd be that would be awesome. You know, there's um, we try to serve um, 
traditional foods there, like, you know, um, salmon plates and, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, but, you know, just to come out and see what we do and see who we are, um, you know, it is a huge part of our culture, um, work and racing, you know, it's more than just a sport to us, you know, it's a, it's a lifestyle and a, and a culture, a big part of our tradition. So if, um, people wanted to come out and see that, you know, they can come out to Brentwood Bay, you know, the first weekend of August every year. Um, ours is actually coming up this weekend. So. And now I'm sitting down with Stephanie Papik, who is revitalizing traditional Inuit tattooing and other indigenous tattooing. I ask her questions about the indigenous tattooing and the process and I guess a bit about the history of tattooing too. Parutit, Kubiahoktunga, Lekwungen Territory, Atira Bunny Rebelong. So greetings. I'm very happy and grateful to be here on Lekwungen Territory. And my Inuvaluate name is Bunny Revelik. My English name is Stephanie Papik. And I'm Inuit on my dad's side. My grandfather is from the Mackenzie Delta, Inuvialuit descent. And my grandmother uh, was from North Slope, Alaska, Inupiat descent. And on my mother's side, I'm Irish uh, ancestry with a little bit of Spanish. I guess there was a shipwreck back in the day. And then my ancestors also uh, were part of colonizing Australia. So, uh, yeah, kind of have roots of both being colonized and a colonizer. So, yeah, I guess I wanted to have Stephanie on because met her at a conference I went to a few weeks ago and she did a workshop on traditional Inuit. Inuit? Is that in... Is there a proper way to say it? I've heard I've heard it sounded differently. Yeah, I've <laughs> Inuit? heard Inuit people say Inuit and oh, yeah, okay. Inuit. Okay. She's, uh, and yeah, she's did a workshop on traditional Inuit uh, tattooing so I thought I would be good to get an interview with her and ask her a few questions about it. Um, how was traditional Inuit tattooing done? Hmm. So just a little clarification. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No problem. I did a workshop on uh, indigenous. Oh, okay. Indigenous. Okay. I didn't want to yeah. specifically teach anything about Inuit tattooing to non-Inuit. Yes. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Indigenous tattooing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, I could tell you how I got started in it, okay, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Uh, it started out uh, first learning about, I had a, a youth who was working at the Ministry of Children and Family Development who was creating aging out care packages for youth and there was a new value at youth aging out of care so they called me and asked me if there were any rites of passage for uh, Inuit. And so I called my great auntie, my Achung Amadik, and asked her. And she said, oh, well, your grandma had face tattoos. And I was like, what? Because we don't really have any pictures of mm-hmm. my family. Um, they were lost in a fire. And so that began the journey. And then I did uh, was able to see the documentary that Alethea Arnick Burrell did called Tuni, Retracing Our mm-hmm. our uh, Lines of Inuit Tattoos. And that's kind of where I made that transformation of like, 
no visible tattoos too. I'm getting my mm-hmm. face tattooed. Just felt this hole in my soul that was uh, there and, and really kind of understood where it was coming from. And, and so part of it was uh, reclaiming and having the tattoos. And, and then also part of it is that Inuit women were, would give tattoos. So that was the next part that I wanted to do. And uh, a friend of mine down here, Liz Dempsey, was really kind and generous and showed me how to do stick and poke. So the type that I do and I teach is using a needle from the tattoo machine and tattoo ink <laughs> so it's a little bit of a blend of modern and um and then i like to encourage people to reclaim their own ancestral teachings around their cultures practice and teachings that come with with tattooing and and then for me i was showing kind of the technical piece as well as the health and safety which is really important is there any specific tattoos you have to get with gender identity identity sure yeah so there's there's some that are for like when you have your your first moon time and my understanding of Inuit tattoos is they were predominantly on women although there were some on men like uh, I believe if you were the one to kill a bowhead whale then you could have a bowhead whale tattoo on your cheek. Um, as well, uh, Inuit also have uh, two-spirited mm-hmm. folks yeah. as well. So uh, like my oldest identifies as two-spirited and some of the chin ones are for like to show you know how to take care of your home or you know how to light the stone lamp, the killick, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, my oldest lives on his own now for almost two years. So, and knows how to. He's carved and lit uh, the stone lamp. So he has those on his chin, um, but obviously doesn't have the one for their first moon time. <laughs> yeah. Is there a certain age that you have to get a traditional tattoo done? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's something I want to learn more about definitely you know the the first line is that your your first moon time uh and then there are stories about um kind of some in some ways similar to being baptized so you know if you don't do this then you know with baptism you're gonna go to hell (laughs) And uh, we have an underworld, so there's some that, you know, if you don't do that, then it's thought that you would go to that underworld. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is used to give tattoos? Has it changed through the years? Mm-hmm. My understanding is that back in the day, we used the soot from the killick, from the stone lamp, which would be black from, from burning, and then uh, using bone for a needle or a stick and there's you could either dip the bone in or the stick into the skin um there's skin stitching as well so you would dip the sinew in the sit and then pass that through under under the skin Mm -hmm. what kinds of indigenous tattooing have you had done (laughs) 
Yeah, I've done stick and poke. Um, I've had the machine tattooing done. And the next thing I'd like to explore is the skin stitching. And when I was at the Bill Reed Gallery, when they had the art show there on tattoos, I saw that they were using the prepackages from hospitals that you do stitching. And that's what I had kind of imagined to maybe use. So... Uh, I think that'll be the next piece is, is learning how to do the skin stitching. Mm-hmm. Can you put tattoos anywhere on yourself? Or is there certain spots you have to get them done? Hmm. My understanding is the, the kind of the V shape on my forehead. That is common across all Inuit women would have that. And it comes with a, a teaching and a story um, around forgiveness. And then the ones on the cheeks are more regional. Um, so where my grandfather in Evaluate Roots, we would have instead of dots, we would have kind of straight lines or diagonal lines from our cheeks, kind of like whiskers almost. And a Kaluit area has the dots. And um, when I was deciding what to do, this was already a little bit hard for my mom. So I thought the lines and maybe just in general living in Victoria might be a lot. So I thought the line, the dots were a little bit more subtle. And, uh, and there's a life-size carving in Iqaluit that my uh, my first husband carved a less than our baby when we were staying there. So I feel a connection to Iqaluit. So, yeah, yeah. When has the facial tattoos come back? I think a huge part of the revitalization was through Alethea. She traveled all over the north along with Ayu and interviewed elders. And they were going to interview the last living Inuit woman with tattoos. And unfortunately, she passed away before they were able to visit with her. So... And then Alethea spent quite a number of years before putting the documentary together. And then she released it only to Inuit women. It was available, uh, you know, with a password, protected. And that way, it was very intentional. She wanted Inuit women to be able to watch the video, reclaim the practice before the public kind of learned about it and before cultural appropriation would happen I can't remember exactly when she published the the documentary but it's definitely taken off in I would say the last like three to four years there's also uh, Hovac Johnson has been a big part uh, getting funding to do an Inuit tattoo revitalization project uh, have, getting money to travel across the north and tattooing Inuit women in the communities as well as teaching other Inuit women to give tattoos. So it's definitely really flourished in the last few years. Is there anything you would like to share about traditional tattoos that I may have not included? Hmm. I often get 
asked a lot if they're Maori tattoos, which I find is interesting because it's the other mm-hmm. polar opposite end of the world. Yeah. And tattoos are something that I'm starting to understand that most indigenous cultures had before missionaries or mm-hmm. churches banned it. And I think that we used to tattoo people a lot younger. And I recall a few years ago in Victoria, middle school aged girls, something like 60% of them were cutting. And I've also learned that pain is grounding. So I think we have taken a lot away, taken away a lot of rites of passage for our youth. And those rites of passage served as empowerment and giving young people tools to navigate that transition from being young people into adults and that our youth are finding ways maybe that aren't as healthy, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm a big proponent Mm -hmm. of teaching young people how to tattoo and giving them access to the materials because they're doing it anyways, but they're using ballpoint ink or and and not doing safe practices. So I really believe in harm reduction and um and have seen the transformation of youth once they they have a symbol on them that resonates with them. It transforms and gives them some confidence and I do always make sure that we have parental approval. <laughs> but I think that the more that we can start to be curious and reclaim our own ancestral practices, especially around rites of passage, then we could probably um, give our, our young people some more tools and yeah, pieces of empowerment to help them to navigate because it's... Uh, um, I think it's even more a dangerous world now than it might have been, you know, three generations ago for Inuit living on the tundra and the 40 below. I think the world is more dangerous today than, than before. All the tattoos you have, are they stick and poke? I have, uh, most of my tattoos are Inuit ones. Oh, wait. Yeah. Uh, I have the birthing tattoos on my thighs. So when mm-hmm. a baby is born, the first thing they see oh, is great beauty. Mm-hmm. I have the mother line tattoo on my chest, which was done with a machine. Mm-hmm. And the solar plexus, I would say, is the most painful thing. <laughs> Still not as painful as childbirth. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the ones on my hands and wrists were done with with a machine as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And the chin ones, I actually did just a few months ago myself, stick and poke. Mm -hmm. I was going to wait till my last period, but then I I, uh, was just having a really hard time in my job and... Uh, had a supervisor who had a lot of fear and anxiety around working with indigenous people Mm -hmm. and didn't know how to deal with that fear and anxiety except for putting it on me through micromanaging and it was having a very soul killing experience my Mm -hmm. immune system was 
was taking a hit. I was getting sick and Mm -hmm. stuff. And so instead of quitting my job, I decided to tattoo my face. And and then I never really saw that supervisor again. And I got moved from their area. And so on top of the the meetings, ancestral meetings, there's also this other layer of like protection Mm -hmm. that um, came out of doing that work. How does the stick and poke process work? Do you have to go over it multiple times or do you just do it once and you're done? For myself, I need to usually do about three Passovers because it's it's essentially like pointillism, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're just doing little dots, and yeah. so you need to kind of fill fill in the dots until it starts to look like a more continuous line. Oh yeah, cool. Awesome. Yeah. How do you handle the looks or questions you get about the tattoos you have on your face? That's a good question. Mostly, I'll notice sometimes people might just kind of look a second time or um, I've only had two experiences in the last three years where recently someone said, your face, which mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, hmm, I wonder if I said that back to you. Yeah. <laughs> and and then again, someone said, oh, your face is so colorful. Or something like that. So I only had in yeah the last few years only two kind of experiences where people were perhaps not thoughtful or inappropriate. But generally, I find I just get people saying like, "Oh, your tattoos are beautiful." If they have an opportunity, they'll ask me, "Do you mind if I ask you about your tattoos?" And I love it when people phrase it that way because it, it doesn't come with that sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's, I guess, three times I've had awkward situations. One, I was biking on the galloping goose and stopped to get water. And a lady immediately said, tell me about your tattoos. And I said, I'm just going to get some water is what I stopped for. And, and then my girlfriend who's not indigenous piped in and and kind of talked a little bit uh, which was also nice (laughs) but yeah generally people are curious they're pretty thoughtful and kind I did have one fellow who knew exactly he's like are you Inuit and I was like wow what an educated Canadian Mm -hmm. so uh, and more people have seen the documentary or read article and Mm -hmm. so it's becoming kind of more commonly known or understood too which is kind of neat yeah Heishkata Josie Word and Heishkata Stephanie Papik. Thank you very much for being a part of Huelnof Radio and sharing your knowledge about war canoes and traditional indigenous tattooing. This episode was produced by me, Nick Henry. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you like this episode, check out our other episodes and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And to end this episode, I have a song from the group Pixic, who is a Inuit-style throat singers. Their names are Kaylee Inuksuk 
McKay and Tiffany Kalektana Ayalek. I'm so sorry if I said that wrong. But those are the names of the group who form Pixic. And they are Inuit-style throat singers performing ancient traditional songs and eerie new com- compositions. Both sisters are also members of the Juno Award-winning band Quantum Tangle. Alongside Grayson Grit, Pixic also specializes in collaborations with other artists. And they have given me permission to play their song in this podcast episode. And Tiffany also happens to be a friend of Stephanie Papik, who... And thank you, Haishka, again to Stephanie for connecting us and allowing us to connect and get have permission to play the song in this podcast episode. Now, the name of the song is... And I'm sorry if I say this wrong... But the name of the song is Nuna to Kilak, which the translation is Land to Sky. And here is Pixic. <laughs> 